welcome to all our listeners to the next edition of our Leaders for Humanity webcast. Uh, this time we're going to have a wonderful guest with us and it's my personal pleasure to introduce Carol Sanford. Carol, hi and uh, wonderful to have you here. And, uh, Great, lovely to be here. It, truly superb and thank you for making time. The title we have chosen in line with uh, Carol's uh, writings is The Regenerative Paradigm creating a better future for all. And I will just do as usual, two quick things. I will um, position it, the, the interview in the context of our good organization inquiry. I uh, will briefly walk you through the flow of the session. Antoinette will introduce Carol properly, and then we will get into the gist of the conversation immediately. And I'm looking much forward to uh, Carol's um, contrarian perspective on some of the topics that we have on our bandwagon. So let me kick us off with um, a view on good organizations and the project. Um, the good organizations project is centered around the question about how good organizations can become responsible in an ever-changing and ever more complex world. How can organizations become positive actors in the ecosystems that they um, are part of? How can organizations offer a container for all the employees and all the other stakeholders inside their organizations or the organizational system to enable them to lead a good life? And how can organizations play a role in developing the individuals and helping them to take a positive stance in life? That is really what the Good Organizations Project is all about. And we're trying to engage a wide range of stakeholders in the project from academic researchers to consultants and thought leaders, to um, business leaders and politicians to see how we can create a coherent, um, not necessarily storyline, but coherent engagement mechanism to bring these different constituents on board. Because we still feel today there's too much fragmentation and ultimately not enough positive change that we find um, in, in our global system. And with that, I would um, immediately like to hand over to Antoinette to do a proper introduction of our Interview, interview today, Carol Sanford. Antoinette, over to you. So I'm very, very glad and honored that we have Carol Sanford here. She is inspiration to, I think, many, many people out there, thought leader, but what I cherish most, a challenger and contrarian, bestseller author, founder and leader of several regenerative communities. So she's also really walking the talk, I would say so, academic influencer, and senior fellow at the Baxin College. And I think we love her most for her really relentless work on challenging us to think, something we don't seem to learn in education well enough, and to learn and to discern paradigms to embrace reflective action. So we're really, really looking forward to having you with us. And with that, I think, before we start with the discussion, Antoinette, um, we, as usual, want to learn a little bit more about Carol herself. And I think, Carol, you said in one of your book that you wanted to become a pet lawyer or dog lawyer at the very beginning <laughs> of your career. And I think we're all very happy that you decided otherwise, as, other, as we couldn't have had this conversation. But um, I wonder, Antoinette, do we want to go into a few more questions about Carol's um, own view of the world and what it means to lead a good life? So we were kind of wondering what's the good life for you and maybe also who um, taught you most about living a good life? So I don't believe in the idea of good life. I never aspired to a good life. I don't believe people should aspire to a good life. I don't work on helping people have a good life because all of that is very anthropocentric. It's all about me. And from a very young age, my grandfather spoke to me about I am nested in a world that I affect every day and it affects me and my ability to play my role, not figure out what I wanted. I never had a person. At, well, my father told me I should figure out how to get rich, but I didn't listen to him because my grandfather said what really matters is humans have no purpose. What they have is a role in an ecosystem and being able to work with keeping that ecosystem healthy means submitting yourself to a whole life, to a whole process and carrying out something. So I have no idea what a good life is. Very interesting. And I think this will come up again. I think 
Yeah. Aristotle might argue that the good life is the good life of all, and the aliveness of the ecosystem might be similar to that notion. But I think we will come to that in a second. Um, well, good has the has a polar opposite. Anytime you use use a word that has a polar opposite, you will trigger that. So the minute you say good, people will have bad things on their list. Like good organization creates the opposite, which is bad. And we have so much polarity in the world that what we want to do is start to reference not humans, not the polarity, uh, not even uh, ideals of some kind. We want to reference how living systems work. So as my grandfather said, we can play our role in living systems and have no references that start with humans. Mm, very interesting. And I think, so maybe we start with exactly this point, because of course, having been part of your European change agent community for a while, I know what paradigms you've got in mind when you make these, um, these, uh, these points, but I think many people listening probably not. So I, I think we could baseline the conversation by your view on paradigms. Would you mind, Carol, just walking us through kind of what are the dominant paradigms and how does your one differ from what most people would probably it, relate it's to? It's not mine. <laughs> right. So let me go back and talk about where these came from. Uh, the uh, first exposure, well, I had growing, growing up a couple of, you know, my grandfather, which you heard about, but I also had a very strong religious upbringing, very fundamentalist, uh, very unchangeable, unquestionable. I got thrown out of a class one time for questioning the Bible. That's how strict it was. I was not allowed to ask questions. But along the way, I managed to meet a man named Thomas Kuhn, who wrote The Structure of the Scientific Revolution when I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, UC Berkeley. And he was there lecturing uh, as a guest lecturer. He introduced, obviously, the idea of paradigms and the idea, depending on what your worldview was and how your mind would say, everything would look different. The interpretation would be different. The meaning would be different. And our even understanding through time would be different. That blew my mind. I thought there were some fixed truth reality, and I knew it. And suddenly this man says to me, no, how you're viewing the world matters. So I, he didn't tell us how to do that. I don't even think Thomas knew how. He would sit in the rat scaler with us and talk about endlessly the theory of how different they were and use science. So I, instead of becoming a dog lawyer, which you mentioned earlier, I became a paradigm uh, seeker, trying to understand what in the world that meant. And that started when I was 20 years old. Over time, I've come to what I'm going to share with you as a candidate, and everything's a candidate because my own understanding of this evolves, uh, has changed through history. And the most, uh, the kind of the lowest level paradigm, and I mean low in terms of doesn't fit with living systems, is what I call the extract value paradigm. And most of you immediately get an image of that. We all extract value. Sometimes we trade value or receive value. But when we get mad at companies and governments, it's because they're getting something for themselves. It's all about get what I can and somebody else will probably suffer. But that's not my job. They're supposed to take care of themselves or their families do. There were people who could see that uh, throughout life, but there got to be a very vocal group in the Western world, particularly uh, in the mid-century, last century. And they started trying to stop some of that extract value, at least slow it down. And wherever they could reverse it, including uh, reversing deforestation, pollution, uh, in inequality in how things took place, injustice where it was unfairly arranged, and particularly groups that uh, set about to conquer other groups. They wanted to stop that. I call that the arrest disorder paradigm. So you got the extract value and the extract the arrest disorder or people who want to arrest that, not have that disorder. The problem is that when you're reacting to something like people who are doing uh, what we would all probably call bad or evil things in the world, you 
only try and get them to stop what they're doing. And we got things like being there are many things, but they're all trying to get something back to a standard of some kind or a restoration. And so I see most of us, all of us well-intended people, doing a lot of arrest disorder. We I did this at Berkeley. I demonstrated, got arrested. I advocated, right, and got quoted, got in trouble, got disowned by my father. All of that was in the name of arresting the extract value paradigm people. Then there were people who I, about 30, 40 years ago, maybe now, started talking about arresting disorder would not get us a world that would work because we're always trying to, we, first, it was based on tons of myths, like there was some pristine forest somewhere, which there had never been a pristine forest. There had been indigenous people who farmed the forest made it healthy, understood something, but we came to realize that arrest disorder was not enough. So uh, a few folks started telling the stories I was telling about beating your wife less isn't enough. That was the arrest disorder or your kids. You had to do good. That's where you're speaking from right now. You had to go do something good, not just arrest disorder. Uh, and that was the humanists primarily who uh, said human beings are conscious, they aren't rats in a maze to be studied, uh, and human beings have something good. They want a good life. They want uh, a good uh, offering. They want to do good, good in the world. And we got philanthropists. We got missionaries. We got companies which said we're going to do good while we do well. Uh, the problem with that is it's all from a humanistic anthropocentric worldview it's what's good for humans and um the problem with that particularly is it's filled with ideals held by a particular group a church group a philanthropy group and someone is defining good for others usually and those others i mean i watch uh, the uh gates foundation here in seattle who goes into africa and supposedly does good and violates the culture even the uh ancient wisdom and the health practices there in the name of doing good and they have tons of money they money money extracting value and so now they want to give it back uh until we get over the idea that doing good is the end all because it's better than the um, arrest disorder and certainly better than the extract value, we're in trouble. What I learned and uh, from my grandfather, he, who is um, half Mohawk, uh, which is part of the Iroquois nation, uh, and he's not, I'm not, anyway, he and my grandmother said humans don't know what is good and every time they do that they get in the wrong worldview you have to get in the shoes of how life works how living systems work you have to learn to think as an ecological um hawk he used to talk about flying above and seeing it and making sense understanding how things work and then ask how can i bring something not to change that which is to do good but to the capability of those people to do good for themselves by their own definition, that forest to do its own work. And my job is the indigenous people long knew was to farm and to, they could see what it would take for a forest. And they would understand that enough to choose to do it, but not and say things like we're doing good because the doing good gets inside of the, the doer of good, not in the receiver of good. And the way to avoid that at the highest level, and this will be the last I say on it for a moment, is to have your role only and ever and forever and ever be ensuring they have capability, it has capability to do what it needs to regenerate itself and then we get out of the way. And, and Carl, <laughs> lovely. Thank you for, for that. And I, I want to enter a little bit into dialogue because this for us is really central. So we are starting from a, a, a view that morality and or ethics and enterprise have to come together. And I think as you already state, 
the big risk is that we will decide the morality is X and we are putting it onto everybody else. So there's like a colonial mindset to say, we know better and we will put right. it onto you, the ideal that you speak about. But I'm, I'm wondering how we can overcome this. And I want to ask you a specific question. So if we go to your responsible business, where you are outlining a stakeholder theory, which has a pentad of um, constituencies. And I want to get this right for the, the people um, listening. I think you're talking about customers first always, and the order matters, and the integratedness of the stakeholders matter, as you describe in the book. Right? So you have the customers, you have the co-creators, which include suppliers, but also any sort of com um, um, contributor to the business. Uh, you have earth, you have communities, and you have investors. And again, I think I find it very noteworthy that you put investors last, which normally would be the first in the list. But you're discerning a specific group of stakeholders that the business should cater to. And you are basically saying you need to put yourself into the shoes of these stakeholders to test whether what you're providing is life-enhancing for them. My question to you is, now let's assume I'm Philip Morris and I'm producing cigarettes. And those cigarettes are life enhancing for the customer in their own perspective. But I know that they're creating cancer. Would I take a value, an axiological kind of value judgment and say, I cannot provide that um, service to or product to the customer because I know it's ultimately going to harm him, even if that customer wants it? Or would you say, actually, I somehow have to resolve this at a higher level and say what's the overarching impact on the whole to understand whether I should provide that service or product or not. What, how do I come out of this paradox? Well, we do neither of those. Those are both, both terrible choices. So I'm going to give you a real example. I work with DuPont Corporation, which pollutes the planet. It does mining. It does sodium cyanide harvesting. It does uh, built Freon. Is that equivalent enough to Philip Morris for you? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So people first said to me, don't go work with those people. You should never work with the evil people. I said, you read that they stay not understanding what they're doing, not having another thought. All of us good people who have the thoughts like you just did should stay away from them. No one had a good argument for that. I said, I go into the middle of the fray. And I never mentioned, never once mentioned to them that they shouldn't do what they're doing. Not once. I don't bring it up. Uh, what I do instead, and this is the regenerative living systems view, you gave a do good, two options within do good. I'd leave them alone or I tell them not to sell those terrible cigarettes. Instead, when I went into the mining industry where titanium dioxide, and that's in this book, was yeah. being uh, harvested. And I taught them how to innovate using living systems thinking. All I did was bring them together for a day or two, once a month, and continue to educate them on how to come to living systems thinking. And how you could, what was happening uh, if you wanted to, and by the way, they had lawsuits. They had demonstrations, people laying their bodies down in front of uh, trucks that were carrying out mining, uh, titanium being mined. Within about a year and a half, we invented a, uh, I, not we, but I'm there with them, so I always feel like I'm in it. We innovated a mining technique that used low-grade titanium instead of high-grade. Now, what that means is, High grade means you, in order to get to the high grade stuff, you have to throw away tons of the low grade stuff. Like 90% of what you take out, you have to throw away in order to get the 10% of the good. What they did is discovered in the way I was teaching them to think about how living systems work, how mining works, was they realized that they could get a much finer, very low cost, uh, patentable, high return that would use uh, less than 10% would be waste. 90% would be used. Now, some people say, well, we shouldn't have titanium at all. Well, that means you don't ever paint your room. You don't, for women, ever wear makeup. You don't put it in your food. It's like pervasive. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we did was innovate and patent 
something that you can hold in the patent, I've forgotten, 20 years uh, onto something, and it reduced and transformed mining completely. Then you know what they said? Hey, this living system stuff is good. Let's go do that on a bunch of things. We did it on sodium cyanide, on Freon, where we figured out how to make things that were cooling agents, but were not hydrocarbon destruction agents and also made it open source so that India and China wouldn't create a different form of Freon. If they just stopped making it, which you would have had me do, right? Stop making Freon. No, instead, I taught them how to think from a living systems and invent products that displaced that, that had the living system effect of keeping things healthy. So oh, I walk into the middle and I teach them to think differently and they figure it out. I never, ever tell them. So when, if I transfer that example to the Philip, Philip Morris example, that would mean we would have to go into Philip Morris. We would have to explain to them how the product- No, not explain. Stakeholders. Nope, and nope, nope, problem? nope, no. You don't explain. That's the dangerous word. Your okay. good ideas never, ever, ever get introduced. No one knew what I thought. No one knew that I thought what they were doing with mine was terrible. I never hinted at it. I never explained it. What I did is taught them how to think so that they could see the working of things. I got them to use that thinking. I did the same thing in South Africa in a way that we moved black Africans who were uh, never allowed to go to school, who were not in any powerful positions at Colgate, I, I taught them how systems work, and we, within six months, had black Africans leading the company and no white uh, Africans displaced, none of them feeling like they lost. You, what you have to do is teach people how to think about how things work through which they can be much more creative, get better results, and then they can see what I can see, and I never, ever show them. I don't explain it. I just teach them how I'm thinking without any examples of you bad people. Mm, good. I, um, very nice. And I think what is really useful, Carol, is again, going a little bit again into your specific situation and see how you did it. Antoinette, I'm sure this brings up lots of questions. Yeah, I was, I was interested in this um, thinking, teaching to think, um, whether this is also kind of then by naturally bringing in the empathy you need because you're talking a lot about essence to essence and put yourself really into a very thorough understanding in relationships so is that also all thinking or um is this something like care which is then kind of coming out of that process i'm just wondering because i think that's so essential in all what you're writing uh, i'm not even um I'm not sure I do any of what you just said. Uh, I go in once a month and I educate people on how thinking works. Essence thinking is part of it. Yeah. Essence thinking is learning to see the essence of how something works. So that's true for you have an essence and how you work, but so does the one particular life shed. So when I was in Australia with the mining for titanium dioxide, what we did is worked on how you think about titanium from an essence thinking view and how you think about mining from a view and how do you think about uh, managing waste like deep well injection. DuPont is the one who stopped doing that, created an alternative because they learned to do essence thinking. So essence, essence thinking is I'm, managing myself and not bringing in all my do-gooder ideas and all my uh, ideals about what I think they should do and all they're doing wrong. It's just, I come be me. My, uh, I, my essence way of working is to disrupt certainty. Can you feel that? Can you feel I am seeking to disrupt every thought you have and are attached to? My work is very powerful because I can do that. And I don't make you wrong. You may make you wrong. You may, th I, I'm guessing what you do is you go, wow, I've never thought of that that way. And I kind of can see it, but 
what I have this other way of working I believed in, and so I'm not sure I want to accept your way. I'm going to debate you, which OT loves to do, or mm -hmm. I'm going to question you. And none of that is very helpful. But if I give you an education in how to learn to see yourself, which manages OT's concern about the bad actors doing things with good, if you learn how to notice what state of being you're in, and I do that in every meeting I come in, we talk about uh, what are you reactive about and what we're talking about, where we've been working, where's your ego getting hooked? And every time one of your colleagues or me or the press says something, what happens? And where does your ego step in? And if you wanted to be serving the purpose of something working out there, how would that work here? I never told any of them they were reactive. I never said your ego is in the way. You're not purposeful. I taught them a way to think about it. Okay. They change themselves. I, I am an educator. Carol, sorry for being interrupted just because of time. But I want to, I think where Antoinette was going was, is it just a question of cognitive analysis or cognitive um, risk reflection? Or is there an emotional aspect of caring of taking accountability, so to speak, for the others. And I think you're speaking about um, reciprocity. You're speaking about caring for the other and for the whole, and, and your whole discussion about external considering is all about taking ever greater responsibility for the nestedness of the, the nested systems that people are in. So is it- All, is the, it, things you, all the things you just listed have uh, uh, three things in them, everything. There's, we have become dividers of humanness. Like there's an intellectual, emotional, moving, and instinctual center. You educate all those from educating the mind about how it's working. Your emotions are driven by how well you can put them to use for their proper use. Do you ever notice, for example, your emotions are running haywire with you and you have no idea how to stop and you have to go sleep or leave the room or get thrown out of the house? And then if you don't, and there's no analysis, it's reflection on self. So learning how to reflect is a process that involves all four centers. It involves intellectual center, watching the emotional center. Is the emotional center doing its right work? Is the intellectual center doing its right work? Or is the emotional center taking it over? Moving center is my stomach getting upset and I'm sick from what I'm doing, or I have pain somewhere. Can I see how that's related to my emotions and to my intellect? Can I get my moving center doing its right work? And so I have frameworks like you just mentioned, OT, where external considering has a range. People learn to see that. Are you in kindness? That's good. Everybody should be kind. Are you in empathy? Uh-oh, I can feel what you feel. And that both of those are external considering. Am I compassionate? I want to help do away with the pain you have, which is where do good comes from. I can't because I've empathy. I don't want it. I don't want you to hurt uh, or caring. Caring is the highest form of external considering because it wants to give you the capability to do what you need to do, not be come in and fix it for you. All of that uses the mind watching the emotions noticing the moving center and then out of that you are able to see something you can't see so don't divide them up they don't exist separately and i think here and i will Antoinette, come back to you in a second i just wonder and we're going a little bit all over the place but carol um one of the people we're talking to is henry minsberg and his notion of rebalancing society and it it links a little bit to putnam's work on um the the notion of a we society becoming an I society, especially in the United States, people becoming more and more individualistic. So there seems to be a, an increasing lack of that caring and external considering when it comes to people taking accountability for others or an even wider circle of ecosystems that they're in. Kind of, is your recipe then to say we have to help all those individuals to get to a different way of thinking? Or are there other ways in addition, maybe to intervene in the system. Well, what's so I don't be I believe you don't need 100% of people moving to move the system. There's tons of research that shows you get somewhere between two and 10%, depending on how deep 
It is. The whole culture changes. But I do believe that the only thing that moves it fast, effective, you can move by activism. I did that. And what I discovered was I generated more opposition. So most of the methods that they're talking about will you you work really hard on a few people, they get in power, they activate their plans and policies, and then the other people get more upset because it is a combination of biological in that we as humans have a a, in order to survive, those of us who survive, go read the survival of the friendliest. Those who survived were the ones who learned to work together uh, with the others. The males didn't dominate, kill each other, and beat up the women apes. Instead, you have a whole set of different kind of primates who learned to collaborate, and the women ended up leading because they knew they were the source of the next babies. That process also turns out to those apes that work with uh, good internal working and collaboration always fight the outsiders. So there's the good side and the bad side. So what you're describing is most people try and band together the people who agree and go put their position out so others can see it. We don't have any process that builds capability of people to see what I just said to notice, like you, O.T., you, uh, what's your name? Sorry. Anna Antoinette. Annette. I'm Tell Annette. me your name. Antoinette. <laughs> me, Carol, will get in my head, just like you have done today, O.T., particularly, the bad people. Mm. We are the problem. The minute you make Philip Morris bad or anybody makes DuPont bad, they are the people who are creating the opposition. So everything we do escalates their need to escalate back. So I don't believe there are multiple ways because all of them are just escalating differences and debate. And uh, they don't understand what the, um, the Sufis call second force, that every time you activate something, you activate an escalation and restraint. I teach people that and say there's a third force, reconciling force, that can, if we get a bigger picture, which we're all a part of, can change things. So I believe until we get so we're changing our parents' parent, schools run, churches lead, uh, businesses hire, and teach them how to manage themselves, we're dead. I would just like to just a little bit dig deeper here. Um, and I think we understand now very well that it's a lot about um, thinking, thinking, thinking. But what you do no. in, when you talk about crafting um, a regenerative business, for instance, you also say that there are sometimes instruments, practices, which are toxic, which makes it very difficult for people to yeah. come into this self-reflective mode. And I was kind of interested whether you would also have these practices maybe on the societal level. I mean, you have this beautiful yeah. list of 30 practices for organizations. Do you have a list for the society as well? That would be really exciting. So, so there's no separation between business. How every business leads is creating the society. And by the way, OT, investors are not last on a list because there's no list. It's a system. And anywhere you step in, you're looking at where it moves. So don't think that I had a list and put them last. Nope, they're equal moving part. The um, whole idea of the toxic practices was to show what we as humans, and by the way, I have a list of 105. I only put 30 in the book, all of which come from old paradigms. So I have the that chapter on 30 divided by five different eras where we instituted as humans because we had a mindset. And by the way, I don't teach only thinking. Uh, I lead with people have to improve what they can see in their mind. So I am working with critical thinking skills, but they're to work on all those centers. So society, if you look at my last most recent book, although I sent the newest one to the publisher yesterday, number five book has in it the regenerative society in the last chapter. 
And the whole book is to show how individuals working in organizations create the societies we have. So there's no separate list. The fact that uh, governments use behavioral theory, all the politicians use behavioral theory, which means it's either reward or punishment. What they do is with their um, followers, donors, they get rewards. And then they try and punish and undermine the people who are not in their follower group, the set of apes who fights the people outside. That process happens at every level, every organization. It is now global. We have spread the behavioral theory, which originated with John Watson here uh, at um, John Hopkins University. We have spread the idea that humans are like rats and we have to manage them and they can't see themselves. So I'm trying to undo all those paradigms about how all the institutions work uh, by building communities which know that they shouldn't be out or it won't work. I mean, they do whatever they want, but it won't work to go advocate, to demonstrate, uh, to uh, debate. All of those things will make everything worse. And all of us well-intended people feel so good about ourselves because we can say, I stand on the right side. All of those are toxic practices. The process of advocacy, uh, of working on racial justice the way we do, I have a program called The Radical Roots of Racism. And it is from this whole idea that anything different than us, we accuse. So we have met the enemy, as Pogo said, and he is us. But I think, Carol, I think the question is, to a degree, the most sustainable, re or let's call it regenerative development will take a lot of time. No. And I think at a, at, at a large societal level, you think, uh, no. I mean, what you did in, in, in uh, some organizations really was extremely quickly. I was very, very impressed by some of your yeah. case studies. But I've seen big, large organizations transform towards a more developmental mindset and set of structures, systems, processes, like you describe it, take three to five years. So I think my question is, is there a way to use different paradigms in different situations to arrest disorder first, then do some good and then go into the no, other? No, because, you, you know, so I'm going to tell you why. Every time you arrest disorder, you're escalating your opposition in the extract value paradigm. Every time. Mm -hmm. And you can see right now you may get one organization which started with a founder like Jeffrey Hollander, right, who seventh generation gets bought by Unilever and, and a London based company. What they're doing is if you ever go research op just put in searches and sometime uh, arguments against seventh generation, just go look and you will find that there are more and more people who speak out against what they did, the changes they made. What I did works also with the communities, never generates opposition. People, most people, when they bought the responsible business, had no idea how I voted. They couldn't have guessed how I voted. They couldn't tell by what I did because I had businesses making 35 to 65% earnings growth every year. And so it looked like a good thing to do. Oh, and if you do it by living systems, that's okay. We'll grow our business. What's amazing is those people change and that's the deep change and they don't generate more opposition. That's what's missing from the well-intended mind that the second force we are with all our philanthropy and activism and speaking out. And Jeffrey finally got this because he kept saying, I'll never work with Walmart ever. We'll never sell anything through them. They're, they're car four. Right. Mm -hmm. But, what happened when he suddenly realized that he was creating opposition to what he was doing and building this kind of force, he finally accepted an offer from Lee Scott, CEO of Walmart, to come there and speak about what he'd done. And it began to move and break down and shake because you're not only working on your own business, you start to work on the ecosystem without 
generating more opposition? I think in um, I I I find it all very very um, interesting, and I think what it means from for us is we have to go back and compare our thinking with your contrarian viewpoint, so to speak, and see where are we differing from your opinion and why. But I want to I want to um, I want to go into another um, thought in the remaining time. One is so basically what we're saying is we focus on the. I think you called it capabilities for responsibility. And we are building the organization basically around unleashing those. And the uh, toxic practices stem from the different paradigms, as you've explained. Um, what draw, drew my attention was your work on cultural evolution. And I really liked uh, how you put your focus on, I think you talked about um, status, symbols, rituals, and taboos. And I think to a degree, there's a lot of work on culture shift and culture change and so on. But I think some of the questions you are posing in your book are not on the list of many of these consultants coming in doing culture change. Can you maybe just go a little bit into, I'm especially interested in rituals and taboos. Kind of what is your experience that brought you to those? And then I think in the last 10 minutes, mm -hmm. we will go a little bit into your regenerative life and the roles. But Maybe on the culture front, Carol, what was your experience there? Well, first, that in my framework, that's I learned that when I was at Berkeley in a class called Cultural Anthropology, uh, a guy who was teaching us all to learn to be anthropologists. And he said, this is how they go and view and can explain to you why a entire history of a culture in this place is what it is, because they know how to look at these things. I took it not as an anthropologist, well, maybe uh, an anthropologist inside a business. And I said, all right, I'm going to teach people to look at their own rituals, their own status, their own totems, their own uh, taboos, because if they can see them and I'm educating them the way we've been talking about for the first whatever half hour or so here, they can say, oh, my gosh, that's how we're creating the problems we have. I, I so I don't tell them to change rituals, but I educate them on how living systems approach to examining things would work. And they will end up saying, you know, I'm noticing that the things we have taboo, like uh, one of the most often taboos is don't go around your boss because you mess up the, I mean, there's a good reason. It's to avoid messing up the lines of communication and everybody's staying on the same page. But what that does is it dumbs down what everybody gets below. And it means the people who need to talk to each other, they have to go get permission. I mean, it's insane as a taboo. What if, and of course, I teach a radical redesign of work systems that gets rid of all those uh, uh, rituals and taboos that uh, keep people reporting to others. Uh, and I don't get rid of hierarchies. I don't even see, I don't, I don't do anything, but I teach them to reflect on. I don't teach them what they do, but I teach them to reflect on what they do through a framework like the one you just mentioned in the book uh, that anthropologists use. That way they can see what do we do repeatedly that have become routine, that are taking us into a ditch. And, and once they learn to reflect, and that's the core of that whole book. And by the way, I would have called it the regenerative business, but that term wasn't popular. So my publisher wouldn't let me on my first book. Then I changed publisher and called my third book, the regenerative business. But everything in all my books is working just from a different window. So um, I think I, I don't tell people what is tab should be taboo or what their rituals, but I teach them how to see them. And I think I will, Antoinette, going into maybe the regenerative life, but Carol, one thing that I certainly have taken away from the interactions with you is this notion of nodal intervention and trying to lift the energy of the entire system to a higher level. And I think that for many leaders today would be a very beautiful um, purpose statement. And you talk about this notion of acupuncture points, right. different to levers and in creating that nodal intervention. And I think, Antoinette, if we go to the regenerative life, and I think that desire, Carol, that you have shown, shown in your kind of first 20 years so clearly to become a positive change agent for a better future, which is kind of the title for today, I'm really intrigued how in your last, well, previous but last book, 
you came up with these roles. But Anjanette, I'll leave that to you to maybe explore into that a little bit, because I think that's close to our heart as well. Well, yes, I mean, you, you already made a very nice introduction of what we would uh, like to know there. Um, the, you are also seeing is also stepping, being able to step into these um, nodal roles. And I find that also an extremely interesting angle. And you differentiate between the initiators, the manifestors and the destabilizer roles. So maybe you give us a little bit of background before we then um, go even a little bit deeper there. All right. The uh, first, these are what I didn't call this in the book, this, and I wish I had. They're meta roles, M-E-T-A, meta above, yeah. which means you have hundreds of roles in life. All nine of the ones that are in this book are ways you can play your role. So you're researchers right now. You're seeing you're being researchers, right? I don't list them as one of the nine meta roles for how society changes. But it's a role which moves things wrong. But you can do them from uh, an educator role, which you're doing a bit of here with your researcher role. You can do it from a designer role, which you spent time uh, preparing for to come in with a design that would lead us in a particular direction. You can do it as an entrepreneur where you take what's in it and you start to look at where you could build a business or help somebody else. You could take it as a media content creator and you're going to create some kind of report or something. If you were to do any of those nine roles, you could go look at what the essence of that role is. And I'll tell you how we got to those answers in a moment. You could do it from the essence of that role and uplift completely how you normally would work. So I challenge you to go look at the nine roles for the work you're doing and ask if I were to do the essence from the educator, what it would it look like? The earth tender, the designer, I mean, each of them. Now, the way this uh, book came about is it's based a lot on what my grandfather did with me uh, when I was young, where I'd be working, we we were working getting pigs to market or, you know, it's a sale barn or, and he would say, if you were parenting these pigs, how would you raise them? And he was putting me in the role of the mother pig, right? And it changed how I thought about caring for pigs and how I thought about our pigs and how I understood why he would take them for a walk down to the river and why they would follow him. I came to understand pigs in a way I never would have if I'd just been the person preparing them for sale. Uh, and then he would say, so when we get to the market, um, you know, you get to be an entrepreneur. How do you want to think about our little business here with pigs and uh, selling flowers? We, we did all sorts of stuff. It would shift my mind. And I could feel that shift when he would ask me for somebody else's view. And I, I was a big uh, fan of even when I was young, Plato and Socrates. And so he'd say, what would Socrates ask? You know, how would he be questioning you? I invited and over 100 people, I think we had 160, who joined an action learning research project. Those people came and spent time with me online. They learned about, and they came by roles. They said, I want to learn to be a better educator even when I'm an entrepreneur. So I taught them about how to think about the essence of a role. And then they went out in the world and they applied it in a situation. The uh, parents uh, would take on an educator instead of their usual thinking, or they just do parenting and do the essence of that. Then they come back and I'd offer a little more about how to watch themselves, how they got in the way. They'd go out and do some more. We did that back and forth three times. We had some cross mix between them. And then they all wrote me a transformational story. What changed for them? All the stories that are in the book are the people who went through that project. As I watched them, it helped me see. I watched what they were doing, where they were going, what they were doing. The book was being created live and the stories were being created live as we worked. I'm now opening that up and anyone who listens to this and cites you know, the two of you and your work, can go join that project now because it's ongoing, but now it's all do it yourself. You have the videos, you have the books, 
And so all you have to do is there's a, um, on <coughs> carolsanford.com under books, there's something that says the Regenerative Life Project. You can sign up and will there's an application agreements you make and you can go do that and become like the person who went through the book. Wonderful. And Carol, I know we, um, you don't do uh, these talks for longer than an hour, you said before, and I think we're two, hour, two minutes away from our time boundary. So I also know that you hate doing the same things twice. So I have a little closeout for you that you might not have done before, which is a 60-second quiz. So I'll challenge you on a short answer on some very complex questions to just see what comes up top of your mind. And I don't um, do that. Say it again? I don't believe in taking what comes off the top of your mind. That means it would be mechanical. It has no thought put into it. What a dumb idea. So you don't want to go through it? No. I, I do not. I uh, never do that. When people say, tell me what comes off the top of your head. I said, no, I want to reflect for a moment. I want to be an engagement, but never that does not give that gives you what you've always thought of before. Always what you already thought, not what you want to invent in this moment. Which I think is an even greater finish, frankly, because I think one <laughs> okay. of the things you pride yourself in is breaking the patterns. <laughs> I, I don't pride myself at all. That would be a dumb, toxic practice. It is who I am, and it's what I bring in the world that's useful. So let me turn it around, Carol. If people have listened to this, and we have explored a little bit what it means to um, create a regenerative life, a regenerative business, a responsible business, step into these different roles, what would be the one message you would like to leave people with who might have now got a little bit of an interest in, in all the things we're talking about? All right. So I don't give advice. And the reason I don't give advice is it's generic. It has zero to do with an individual organization. But the, the other thing that's, um, that's really important is that it's all about education anyway. It's all about learning to, to lift oneself into uh something well the way a better way of saying that is you don't create the regenerative life you every day see if you can do that and you don't create there's no regenerative business people say give me an example there are none there are people who every day get up and work on the principles and the ways of working because regeneration is a momentary thing it's not permanent it's not achievable it's not certifiable it's not an end state it's a process for a way we stay conscious and work on conscious energy for how we live and what we create. Wonderful. And Carol, I can only say it has been also always a sublime pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for making time. And especially for the, for the contrarian viewpoints. And with that, I would say we close it here. And again, um, everybody who's got interested, stay tuned. I think Henry, Henry Mintzberg is the next person who will come on our list. So uh, looking forward to meeting you all. Thank you very much.